brief notes as we get started this morning. One is um, a thank you to you for thanking us for doing the work of the ministry here at Redeemer. Last Sunday was a joy for, I know, for Dan and myself, um, hearing brief testimonials that um, are a blessing to us to be a part of. And so just wanted to give a word of thanksgiving. It is always kind of, what do you say thank you to people who say thank you to you? Um, so it's like, I don't know, maybe you should just receive it, but then we wouldn't want to communicate that we lack thanks, and you're showing thanks, so thank you. Um, it was kind. It was very kind and sincere, and we appreciated it much. The other notation to make is, as we travel through Luke's Gospel, it's interesting how it's uh, kind of unfolded in the chronology. It's interesting to me, I guess a little bit, not so much to Lauren Scholke, who picked practically the exact date where we would be a year or two later somehow. I don't know how. But I guess as a listener, she can pace me better than I'm pacing myself. I give myself more credit um, than perhaps she does. So, um, but on pacing, it is an interesting note. We'll be like kind of near the resurrection at Christmas, maybe. I don't even know. But we won't be at the birth narrative. Uh, we'll, we'll, be at, we'll be at the other end of the theological uh, spectrum uh, by Christmas. Um, because this morning's text, actually, as we join in the passage that was just read for you, is actually the beginning of what the church has called since the 4th century. So, as the people of God joining in the church, not like this church just started, like the church just began, um, or that the church began at the Reformation, but the church, since the 4th century of which we are a part, has called um, this text the beginning of what's known as Holy Week. So if you're to proceed from here, from Sunday through your Monday, so on and so forth, as you come to next Sunday, as you maybe spend some time in Luke's Gospel, the Gospel slows down, of which I greatly appreciate. Right? It, it really slows down as it moves into this portion, um, as it's climatically moved us toward Jerusalem since chapter 9. Right? And you're like, man, we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to Jerusalem. Well, we're in Jerusalem, here it goes. And it's like, slow down, don't get carried away. Um, but this text begins that which is once again considered Holy Week in the church's calendar. Now, consider by way of Holy Week what I'm mentioning to you is essentially this. If you look, um, verse 28, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. It's marking now, and, and we'll get to exactly how this is working in the scheme of time a little bit toward the end. But just to give you the background here of what we can piece together, how we know this is taking place in the triumphal entry is that beginning of Holy Week is a work from other Gospels as well. But at this point, as he is going on ahead, it is the Sabbath now has passed. Okay, so, so we're moving from Sabbath to beginning of Holy Week. So that means at the beginning of verse 32, people are allowed now to begin traveling. Right? On Sabbath, you cannot. So now people are all moving, and he is on the move, and the disciples are on the move, the crowd is on the move, and they're going to Jerusalem for the event of Passover. So again, the church has said, this is a sacred week in our Lord's life, and it's sacred for us to mark his journey to Jerusalem. So here in the first day of 
Holy Week. It is marked by what we would call, and you know this um, as we've noted it at that time of the year, in the church's calendar. Some, 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 of, some liturgies follow that church calendar and then choose sermons throughout the course of the year based on the time of the calendar of the church. We have not done that here at Redeemer, but to acknowledge we do jump in, you'll notice we, we note Christmas time, and then you'll see again in Easter, and the Sunday prior to is called Palm Sunday. So it's referred to as Palm Sunday because if you look at the other Gospels, Luke doesn't incorporate it here. Here with Luke, he says they're throwing the cloaks on the ground, and they threw the cloaks on the mule. But if you look at John and Matthew, they add people are grabbing branches, palm tree branches. John is most specific, and they're tossing them on the ground. They're layering the ground. So the church has said this sacred week begins in Palm Sunday the triumphal entry of our Lord, coming to Jerusalem. So Palm Sunday is actually a day, if you were to think, what is the emotive response of the people of God when we look at Holy Week and we begin with Palm Sunday? It isn't a day of sorrow. And that's what's here in this passage. What you'll see, it's a day of actual regal celebration. Right? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! That is the beginning of what ends up going a different direction. But it's a celebratory moment on Palm Sunday. It is the day of our Lord's approach to Jerusalem, as we just sang, for our salvation. Not a random trip, not a trip unplanned that ended up in some sort of quagmire that was not anticipated and ended in crucifixion. That is not why the church calls it Holy Week. It just so happened to be that Jesus died. And then we found out, no, it's the beginning of his journey to Jerusalem for our redemption. Now, significantly with the movement of John's gospel here, or excuse me, Luke's gospel here, is that Jesus, with this movement in the passage, as it's now going, I'm going on ahead to Jerusalem, Hosanna! And then they say, hey, make those people be quiet. And he says, no! If I did, the stones would cry out. Which, we'll get into what that kind of means next week. Um, You'll notice at the bottom, you see in verse 44, there's a hint of what what that's getting at. But but we'll look at that as well next week. Um, The point is, it's not a secret What we see now in the triumphal entry is a point of revelation and confirmation to all those who are following him that indeed he is the Messiah of Israel. This marks a shift. It's no longer going to be like, hey, not, not now, maybe later. Don't tell them. What do you think? I am? It's a confirmation. He is the Messiah of Israel. Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they say, make them be quiet. And he says, no, uh-uh. Jerusalem is going to be the point of revelation. For better and for worse, depending on where you stand. Notice in our passage, in the beginning of Holy Week, this movement of sacred time, drawing near to the hour of crucifixion, leading in the victorious resurrection, that begins right here in its movement over the Mount of Olivet, down in to Jerusalem. 
this point of messianic revelation, or the revelation that Jesus indeed is the Redeemer of Israel, begins with Jesus taking that which is common and making it sacred. This is, this is going to be a detail in the text that is going to confirm he is who he said he is. No, make them stop saying it. No. There's details and layers in the text that show the confirmation he is the Redeemer of Israel. And you're going to see it begin with him making something that is very common, something very sacred. Notice how the passage begins. I'll just read for you as we work our way through it, verse 28 through 34, again, to wrap your mind around the scene. Sabbath has ended. People are allowed to move, and everybody's moving toward Jerusalem for the Passover, the beginning of Holy Week. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet. So he's, he's giving you the, the geography at all. We'll see in a few moments in John. This is roughly like contested somewhere between about a, a, a mile and a half to two miles outside of Jerusalem. Uh, John's gospel says it's two miles, I think is what he says. But it's, it's scaled in that, 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 that uh, distance. So he sent two of the disciples. Notice the movement. He sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village that is in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the coal, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the coal? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Isn't that a peculiar exchange? You look at it and you see these men just, what are they going to do? What are we supposed to gather from this? Is this a random happenstance? Go up to this village, you're going to find a coal, untie it. Some person is going to ask you, hey, what are you doing to untie it? And you just shout out to them, the Lord has need of it, and walk away. And they're like, oh, in that case, that's on the probability scale, highly unlikely. So what is taking place? What is most likely with this brief encounter of what Jesus tells the disciples to go and do and what they will find and what they must say and what will be the response is that Jesus made earlier arrangements with the owners of the donkey. Again, these are not random strangers. Like, go into this village and search about and there'll only be one donkey tied up. Again, unlikely. They are not strangers who allow other random strangers to untie their colt due to making a cryptic comment that then gave way to their donkey. Rather, if we think about it logically, reasonably, in this passage, that he gives such brief instruction, but trust me, when you say this, well, what we're going to do is we're going to take off, we're going to take the colt, and then we promise to bring it back. No, you say to them, the Lord has need of it. 
That's enough for these guys. That's enough for them. And bring the coal. In other words, the response that the Lord has needed it means something to these owners. They were at some point in time engaged in this gonna, that this is going to happen. Do they know? Oh, I know why he has need of it. Here he goes. No, and we have no indication of that. But they were told that the Lord may have need of it. And what is the response of believing people? Then take it. It's yours. You see, the simplicity of the comment, the Lord has need of it, and the sincerity that that has some meaning to them of reverence, and it promotes in them a duty unto him, Jesus of Nazareth, indicates that these owners consider Jesus to not be a Lord, riding into Jerusalem perhaps, but indicates they believe him to be their Lord, perhaps riding into Jerusalem. A brief picture of these unknown individuals who owned the colt is a picture of an act of humility and service. I don't want to go on and on in the portrait of these people. We're not sure. But the weight of the passage would indicate to us indeed that they were submissive to Christ. And we don't even know their name. But they gave of what was theirs in the service of the Lord. This is the beginning, the first act we see kicking off Holy Week is an act of service. There's another important feature that I want to note to you as well, is that the fact that these men knew, or this owner knew, and that Jesus had a plan for the donkey, and the donkey to return, and for him to ride upon it, indicates yet again and again and again, it falls in line with the truth that Jesus knew himself to be the Messiah. And his obedience in life and his coming obedience in death was in every way intentional and in every way ordained. He told them before, the Lord is going to have need of it. Because the Lord himself knew why he was going to Jerusalem. As believers, this is so significant as we give him praise, as we lay down our lives, as we receive him through faith. This is not a random death by bad circumstance. It is a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. And in every way, intentional. Remember what he previously had said in Luke 18. Again, How intentional is this beginning of Holy Week? How intentional is it that he spoke about the need of perhaps borrowing or using, employing someone's donkey? Luke 18.31. I won't make you turn there. We've spent a couple of months there. So so I know you have it memorized. So allow me the brief uh, quotation from Luke 18 that falls in line with every bit of this passage. Luke 18.31. Jesus says, we are going up to Jerusalem. And perhaps if you were able to insert there and ask why, he continues, 
everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Again, his death as according to the plan for this cult is in no way accidental, but in every way intentional to pay for the sins of his people. If we were to turn to Matthew and look at the parallel account that Matthew paints this same triumphal entry. Again, some of the details are different per gospel. But Matthew, in the context, chapter 21, Matthew cites right here that this is indeed, as Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem that everything in the prophets might be fulfilled. Matthew says, I'll tell you which one it is. You know, like everything, not a single passage, but everything written about the Son of God is to be fulfilled. And one striking image that comes to mind in this very moment, Matthew says, is Zechariah 9.9. You say, you mean a very specific comment written about this very specific incident 560 years earlier? His death isn't by happenstance. We don't celebrate Holy Week because of a random act of violence. 560 years prior to this event of Jesus borrowing this colt and riding in and beginning that journey into Jerusalem, Zechariah wrote this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, why? Why raise our voices? Why shout aloud? Why rejoice? What are you saying? Behold, your king is coming to you. We're going to Jerusalem, guys. Why? Everything that is written about me in the prophets must be fulfilled. Like what? Like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Rejoice. He is righteous and having salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Well, on a colt. Full of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9, roughly 560 years before the triumphal entry. Notice also this, this moment has how the text is beginning to lay bare the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. That now it is no longer to be a secret. No longer is it kind of going to be perceived by some. No longer is it going to be cryptic as he speaks of it. But now it is out in the open and confirmed and revealed in the beginning of Holy Week here as he makes his move toward Jerusalem. Notice how the heightening of the scene takes place through the comment about the donkey. How is Jesus' messianic revelation becoming clearer and clearer through the passage, through the work of this cult? This is significant. Look at the detail in verse 30. Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied. This is a significant detail in the text of the revelation of Jesus as the Redeemer and Messiah. The very next phrase, on which no one has ever sat. What is the weight of that, the significance of that? What's well, so significant for the passage of the revelation of Jesus as Messiah because it's built on an Old Testament understanding of sacred use. Think about it just for a moment. Everywhere in the Old Testament text, animals that are used for sacred use 
could never have been previously employed in ordinary acts of service. Make them be quiet. No. They're saying that you're the Messiah. Right. Even in evidence of it is riding on a colt upon which no one has ever sat. Think about this just for a moment. It's not a random detail, guys, where you just go, you'll find a colt tied up, it's pretty young, and just bring it over here. You'll find a colt tied up upon which no one has ever sat. Something ordinary, being employed in very sacred service. Let me give you one example to sink your teeth into of the significance of the cold <laughs> confirming the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah of God. Think about the Ark of the Covenant, right? The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament text, the, the, the centerpiece of God's presence among the people, right? The Ark of the Covenant, so significant for God's presence among his people. 1 Samuel 6, 7. Let me read this text for you. Now then... Take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, right? Because no one is allowed to just pick up the Ark of the Covenant. We know how that ends. No one is allowed to do that. It has to be carried on very specific protocols, right? The Ark of the Covenant has these two poles. You carry it this way, and this is specific how it is to be carted about. Why? Because it's so sacred. Here he gives instructions about the movement of the Ark of the Covenant. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, Here's the detail. On which there has never come a yoke. No, 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 we'll just grab a couple of cows. We've got a bunch of them here. That doesn't work in sacred service. These animals must have had no ordinary service because they're doing something set apart in sacred usage. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart. But their calves, lead them and take them away home. So in the continuity of just a small picture, and we could go piece by piece by piece, but I just don't have time. In the continuity with the Old Testament, that is an animal set apart for sacred usage, Luke paints the same portrait of our Lord's command. Go and find this colt that is tied on which no one has ever sat. Interestingly, how young the colt actually is, Matthew adds to it that the um, young colt is actually tethered to its mother. That's how young it is. That is... It has never been employed in ordinary service. Matthew says that it's tethered alongside its mother, and the reason for it is because the mother would very naturally have accompanied the young animal. Again, what is the point of revelation here? That is that this young and in every way common beast of burden was set aside for sacred use at the beginning of Holy Week. And its sacred use was to carry the King of Kings into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. 
grab a donkey, any donkey. Grab, in fact, grab a coal. Just, do we have one available? No. Nope. Grab this one from these people. And it is one that no one has ever sat on. But again, notice the response of the people at this point. I want to begin in 28 again. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. The movement of Holy Week. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Where I'm entering, you will find a colt tied. Of which Matthew, again, says, tied to the mother. It was a pair of them. Why? Because the colt was so young. Well, why is the colt so young? Because no one has ever sat on it. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You say this. How do we know it'll work? Trust me, it'll work. Simply say this. The Lord has need of it. What took place? So, verse 32, those who were sent away and found it, those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. How is that possible? It was foretold 560 years earlier in Zechariah 9.9. Behold, here he comes. No surprise, they found it just as he had told them. Verse 33, And as they were untying the colt, you won't believe it. The owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? What are we going to tell them? Actually, we knew this was going to happen. We have something to say to you. Like what? The Lord has need of it. Then take it. Verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus. And then here comes this colt of which no one has ever ridden. A beast of burden set aside for sacred usage before it was even ready to work. Here it is, tied to its mother. It is a colt. And they brought it to Jesus. And here we continue this revelation of Jesus, the Messiah. Throwing their their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their Cloaks on the road, of which then the other gospels say, and also branches, branches. Why? They're lining the pathway of regal celebration. Here he comes. Put your cloak on the colt. Come on. Try to get him on it properly. Here's the pathway. Cover it and cover it and cover it, for here comes royalty. And as they do that, notice the response of the crowd. Verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, just continuing to throw. You can imagine the the feeling in the air of tossing their cloaks and their clothing and branches. Hey, give me some of those branches, throw it down. It's sacred space. Here comes the Lord. And this is exactly what they say. Notice verse 37. As he was drawing near already in the way down the Mount of Olives, he's coming down toward Jerusalem, the whole multitude of his disciples. Now, we know by multitude here, we know we're talking a lot of people. 
How many thousands of people is hard to know precisely, of course, because it's not giving us a number, but it's multitudes of people. If we go back a few chapters, we see indeed that John Mar- Luke marks out that there's thousands of people gathered. And at this point in time, the crowd is huge. And I'm going to show you why in just a moment. This is a massive movement toward Jerusalem. There's a lot of coats on the ground. And look at what their response is as he comes down from the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples. What are they doing? They began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, because of Luke's strategy here with his own gospel, perhaps we're thinking, oh, that makes sense. A lot of mighty deeds. They've seen Tons of things take place. We go through them, where, where, where it's restoration of hands, it's restoration from leprosy, it's blind, or, or it's sight to the blind, it's those who are crippled, it's a healing of a hemorrhage. We could go on and on, demon possession. We could say, there are probably a lot of mighty deeds in a very strong accumulative effect here where they're throwing their cloaks on the road. And that is true, yes. But, There's one particular mighty act that is astounding of what these folks, this crowd, just witnessed. Turn with me to John 11. I'm just going to jump through the chapter. I wish I could just sit and just keep reading the whole thing, but I'm going to pick probably more than I should. But I want you to get the flow of what's taking place here and why these people are so enthralled that here comes Jesus Well, we've seen him in these parts before. Toward the end of his ministry, he's in Bethany all the time. We've seen him before. No! He's riding on the colt. What? Zechariah 9.9. Here he comes. Our king is coming to Jerusalem. This is him. This is he. The Messiah of Israel. The Redeemer of his people. And Luke says, they're saying this and in part significantly moved by what they have seen of mighty deeds. What is the mighty deed, perhaps even most palatable at the moment? Look at John 11. Follow with me quickly. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, verse 4. But Jesus heard, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. They're celebrating, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! This is he! This whole setup here with Lazarus is so that people may glorify God. So that you might believe. Go in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. The disciples said, What would seem normal? Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll, he'll wake up. Verse uh, uh, 13. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking rest. Verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Why? 
I thought you loved Lazarus. Right? And I love you. I'm glad I wasn't there so that we can go. I'm going to raise him from the dead and you can believe. Look at verse 17, kind of keys us in on Holy Week, where we're at over in Luke's gospel. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Now, 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha says, well, I get that. I I get the eschatology of it all. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you see, whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. <clears throat> Think about it. There are multitudes hearing, that, that multitudes present, multitudes who are going to witness what's about to be unveiled. And their response will be, praise the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 38 then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Do you see what's happening here, by the way? Side note, I'm putting in a footnote, and you're looking at the bottom right now and reading the footnote of the text. Do you see what's happening right now? A foreshadowing of his own resurrection. I am the resurrection. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a stone rolled over the tomb. Just roll it out of the way. From the stone. From the tomb is going to come life. Because we're moving towards Holy Week. Martha, the sister, um, and this is very specific as he marks, look at how many times he refers to Lazarus um, as dead. John, on purpose. He wasn't asleep, just to be clear. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha said, uh, uh, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be a pretty bad odor, for he's been dead for days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. This is an important picture as well of a believer's prayer life. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people who are standing around. Why? That they might believe that you sent me. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 43, when he has said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Verse 44, the man who had died. Right? The dead man's sister, the man who was dead, the man who had died. He's coming out with his hands and his feet, and they're bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Look at verse 45. Many of the Jews were there. Uh, Excuse me. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? Make them be quiet. No. Silence your disciples. 
Do you hear what they're saying about you? No. If I were to hush them, the rocks themselves would cry out. Look at the response of the Pharisees here in verse 47. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Luke says, yeah, and these many signs caused a multitude of people to recognize that he comes in the name of the Lord. That's the same problem the Pharisees are having in verse 48. If we let this go on, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Same setting as Luke. Six days before the Passover. The beginning of Holy Week. Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the resurrection and the life. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there in Bethlehem, or I mean in Bethany, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Verse 10 So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. You see, the conspiracy is growing. we got to chop off Lazarus as well. He's complicit in this. Because on account of him, that is, the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. You know, like go to the village. You're going to find a donkey tied there. What are we going to say when we start to take it? Well, you just tell them that the Lord has need of it. John, the disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Verse 17 and Luke 19 are working in tandem. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Back in Luke 19, as we close our time together, you see, Reading the text one more time, as we begin toward Holy Week, notice the detail, verse 37, joining with John 11. As he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, who John tells us were there when Lazarus was raised, 
they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Why? For all the mighty works that they had seen. Jesus raised Lazarus even from the dead. What is the response of people who see that and receive it in faith? Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Finally, there is yet another response. Every time that Jesus is revealed, there are two responses. One of submission and praise and one of resistance and denial. This, in our conclusion, is exactly what sets before you this morning in the preaching of this very same text. Jesus is revealed at this moment to be the ruler of Israel, the Messiah, the king of his people. There is but two choices. One of submission and praise, where you at this moment receive him through faith. You rest solely upon him as the sole object of your faith, apart from any works that you can perform and provide. Apart from any merit, you come to him wholly in need, empty hands, and you fully receive all that he provides. Your response in this moment of hearing is simply this. Blessed is the king whom I've heard of. Blessed is the king of whom I just read about, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a response of faith. And likewise, there is yet another response. It was spoken of earlier in the concluding comment this morning. I'm, I'm ending now. It was earlier in verse 27. Do you see it? Look at verse 27, what the response is that is otherwise, instead of saying, blessed is the king who comes, that day of Holy Week, there is a, yet another response. And it is a response of those who, in verse 27, are enemies of Jesus. And how do they show that they're enemies? They do not want him to reign over them. That's the other response in the room not wanting Jesus to reign over you. One saying, blessed is he who comes. He is the king. Let us receive him in faith. Let us rest solely upon him as our deliverer. And there's another one who says, I don't want him to reign over me. I heard that he is the resurrection and the life. I heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead. I saw that he's riding into Jerusalem this holy week. And I say this, don't reign over me. It is a response of unbelief. That's where the text stops. There's an interesting note as we'll look last week, right? Those who don't want him to reign over them say, shut these disciples up. We're sick of hearing them say what's blasphemous. You know it, we know it. Tell them to shut up. He says, no. No, no, you don't don't get it. We are not going to have you reign over us. The concluding comment of the text is, You cannot stop the rule and reign of Christ. Yes, we can. No, you can. Well, we can make them stop. But that doesn't stop the reality and reign of Jesus Christ. If you can put duct tape or gorilla tape across her mouth, I'll just, I guess, have the stones cry out. The essence and truth of who he is is true to everyone, whether one receives it or one utterly rejects it. The truth stands and is affirmed. Jesus is the only Savior. 
He is the only sole object of your faith. Anything other and anything less is to say, you will not reign over me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We pray that you would help this to sink in in our hearts and our minds, that we'd receive this word in faith. Lord, we would find those little areas where we, even as your people, find pockets in our life where we say, you will not reign over us here. And yet you show that your sovereignty extends to all things, not secret compartments in our lives. But your sovereignty rules and reigns over all the world, over every place, space, and time. Bring us, your people, to repentance. For those who are here and see this text and think, I'm not so sure about the resurrection and the life. I'm not so sure about the Hosanna. I'm not so sure that he is the king. I pray, Lord, that you let them feel the weight of disagreeing, the weight of their faithlessness. And you'd call them to rebuke. You'd call them to conviction. You'd call them through confrontation to repentance and faith. Thank you for your table that we receive in faith, that we once again are nourished by. And we together as your people say, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.